Known for Sunshine Hollywood movies, Mickey Mouse and Silicon Valley, California has been at the center of global biotech for nearly half a century. The 1976 founding of Genentech in South San Francisco is considered the birth of the modern biotechnology sector. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health podcast, I'm speaking with Mike Guerra, the president and CEO of California Life Sciences. For 30 years, CLS has supported early stage investors and startups, as well as established players in biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, and medical tech. Mike has been leading CLS since 2019. Last year, Mike was named CEO of the year by San Diego Business Journal and has more than a decade of experience in the life sciences. Mike, it's always great to see you, sir. How you been? Likewise. Happy to be here. It's been good. Been crazy, which is pretty much the same I've had for the last four years of craziness, but it also is never boring. Nothing going on in the health tech sector. Nothing. No, everybody is super calm and, and nobody's trying to kill us with bad uh, policy. Which we're here to talk about because there's plenty to talk about. Before we dig into the tech issues here and the policy issues that are going on. Can you tell me a bit of the history of CLS and the membership? I mean, how do you guys roll in California? Yeah, sure. As you mentioned, we've been supporting uh, and advocating for California's life sciences sector for 30 years now. Uh, Today, we have a presence in the Bay Area, San Diego, Los Angeles, Sacramento, Washington, D.C. Our mission is pretty simple. You know, we want to protect and nurture California's life sciences sector. You know, we're proud to have an incredibly diverse membership base, and that's a, a little bit different compared to other associations. We have over 1,100 members across California, and they really include some of the world's largest life science companies focused on med tech, biotech, pharmaceuticals, as well as many of the small and emerging life science companies, research, and the academic institutions. In addition, we like to work with some of the most promising early stage uh, startups, which is where we see some of the most exciting innovations. Uh, An example of one of those is Fauna Bio. Uh, This past November, they won our Emerging Innovations Award, which is from our 19th Annual Pantheon Awards. And they're developing therapies that are inspired by disease resistance in animals. And just a few years ago, they were just three first-time founders who began to look at animals uh, who are very closely related to us as humans. Uh, They were then selected to go through our CLS FAST advisory program And it was really special to see Fauna uh, come up and and come full circle and be recognized with the Pantheon Award. When you mentioned the FAST Advisory Panel, what exactly is that? That sounds interesting. We have people who apply to be part of that program. And we have some advisors, over 200 advisors, that donate their time to really help them in all aspects of their business, but in particular trying to develop their pitch, trying to develop various processes of their business to get them ready to take to the next level. So it's like a mentorship program, but it's also more commercial. Focused. Absolutely. And how successful has that been? Have you seen stuff actually get from bench to bedside, as they say? Or? Oh, it's been terrific. Um, I, you know, the the companies that come to us now and and tell us um, that they wouldn't be here or be in existence without that program has continued to grow. Public companies that have done some great uh, research uh, and come to market with some products came through our FAST program, so we're very proud of it. It speaks to the depth of the bench you have in the California life sciences biotechnology sector. It's without question the largest in the United States. I know Massachusetts gets a lot of ink, but we see that generally 20 to 30% more liquidity comes to California per annum every year. You know, you've been at the helm of CLS since 2019. Basically, the sector is under tremendous pressure right now. You've had to deal with numerous executive orders on pricing, a global pandemic, and now a price control bill that's come out of the Congress and signed by the current administration. How does CLS work with its members to navigate that minefield? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely been an interesting four years. Um, I think first and foremost, I'm very lucky to have an amazing board of directors that supports me and our CLS team every step of the way. Uh, our members are also very supportive and uh, as a membership organization, without them, we wouldn't exist. Um, we're also very proud of the way some of our member companies led through the pandemic. Gilead and Genentech came up with the first COVID therapeutic Abbott-led development of rapid tests, and Pfizer and J&J developed life-savings vaccines, which many of us uh, have had to date. During one of the darkest times in our global industry, the life sciences industry provided hope and truly real solutions that we hadn't had before. It's very surprising and, and frankly, very troubling that the past three years have had so clearly demonstrated the value of the life sciences sector, yet at the same time, policymakers impose some of the most significant headwinds with potentially devastating impact to our industry. One of the big points about some of those headwinds is the Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed at the tail end of the last Congress before the elections. The IRA says that the government now has the ability to deal with pricing negotiations, but it handles these two types of products differently. Small molecules will have nine years without negotiating pricing, and large molecules, the biologics, which California is known for, as is Massachusetts, the biotechnology sector, We'll have 13 years. You're going to get four more years of revenue with a large molecule compared to a small molecule. What are your members saying will be the impact of this type of decision that's going to put pressure on one type of molecule over the other? Yeah, I mean, the reality is they already started seeing the impact and they already started making changes from the day the Inflation Reduction Act really um, was, was voted in. You know, how long of a runway companies have to earn a return on their R&D investment is the reality that our members and investors in the biotech startups are really facing right now. This runway also makes companies consider how long they have to conduct follow-up research and trials for a therapy they brought to market, which is common practice in areas like oncology. I'd add that the recent tax treatment of R&D expenses is another unnecessary headwind against doing innovative research work in California and across the rest of the country. On the plus side, CLS was really successful advocating to restore the R&D tax credit and the NOL deductions last year for California. And we worked with our California legislator and the governor's office to make sure they understood how important it was to get that restored and really for companies of all sizes. It's so important to some companies, actually, that uh, they've said if it was not restored, they'd be forced to look to move outside California. And that is certainly something we don't want to see happen. Do you see companies moving? Do you see starting a headcount starting to drift? Um, you know, I haven't seen anybody specifically from my board come to me and say it because of this, but there are companies that are doing it. There's companies that I'm seeing that I read in the news. There's companies that there's so many more tax incentives from states outside of California um, that we don't give the same advantages to. And much of it is because I, I think our state really believes that we are such an epicenter for biotechnology that they don't need to offer the same um, tax incentives and things that other states do to try to pull them away from us. And, and it's really too bad, especially with cost of living and all the other issues. Yeah. Former Governor Ducey in Arizona was trying to feast on California biotech. I, I know that they had a lot of programs and a lot of manufacturing move there. But manufacturing is one thing. R&D is another. California still has the lion's share. California and Massachusetts really lead a cutting edge new biotech. 
you know, the tax laws that they want to put on capital gains, where they're going to put in a capital gains penalty in California. They also want to put in a 10-year hard taxation. Even if you leave the state, you're going to be taxed for 10 years. Are the politicians aware of the potential risk this causes? I think it really depends on what level of the politicians you're talking to. Um, there are some uh, in the governor's office and, and at the Capitol that I think are starting to really understand it and feel it. And they're having very direct conversations with many of the biotech and, and life science companies across California. So I think they're starting to understand it a little bit more. But the response we get quite often is the amount of people that are leaving versus the amount of companies that are coming in. They're not seeing the impact. And I don't want them to see the impact, but there's a certain level where until they do see that, I don't know that they're going to change anything unless we find the right laws and and the right policymakers to ensure that we're really protecting the life sciences ecosystem and protecting innovation, which is what we're all about. There's a sort of irony there in that California has been so strong in biotech and has really led global innovation in new products, orphan drugs, new molecular entities, biologics. There's so much exciting science, yet the California politicians are often the ones who are behind a lot of these policies that are very harmful. How do you explain the cognitive dissonance between the politics and the reality of their own constituents? How do you get around that? Well, I think the constituents is is the big key there. As we talk to a lot of those elected officials, uh, and many of them that are elected officials from South San Francisco in the Bay Area, which is the birthplace of biotechnology, or the San Diego area, or even LA Orange County, which is becoming a, another hub, they understand the benefit of life sciences. They even seem to understand that protecting the innovation is, is first and foremost, but it's their constituents that they always reference back to with they're saying the prices at the counter are too high. They're saying all these are the things that we as uh, elected officials have to listen to. And, and they seem to be very pulled on what makes good business sense to them versus what is the public saying? What are their constituents saying and how do they get reelected? And, and I don't know what the answer is aside from us continuing to lobby and make sure that we educate them on what the true impact is of poor legislation and the unintended consequences of that poor legislation so that they can truly figure out what is the best thing to do to support not only their constituents, but the life sciences industry. You know, we looked at uh, the 12 companies that would most likely be impacted from the Inflation Reduction Act. And then we looked at their investment behavior over the last 10 years. The joke I like to tell people is a boat is a hole in the water that you throw money and a biotech company is a hole in the backyard you throw boats. You know, it's a very expensive business. And what we found in the 12 companies who were most likely to be impacted with price negotiations under the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, there were 229 investments made in the United States, roughly totaling $439 billion over the last 10 years. You know, almost 30%, $148 billion of that alone was in California, $15 billion a year. What happens to the members if that liquidity, that $15 billion a year, is pulled out of California? What, what occurs? Well, nothing good. Uh, you know, for, first and foremost, it is absolutely not good. Um, you know, I'm already hearing that our members are making decisions today in anticipation of future impact. Investors are making decisions today as well as uh, regarding anticipation of future impact. Um, some companies are publicly reporting that they're killing products in their development pipeline because the conditions imposed by this law make them unviable in the future and no potential return on their investment. Uh, and it's not just big companies, medium and small companies, especially those that don't expect to see revenue for a decade 
are scaling back and reducing their burn rates. And that also means that they're having to eliminate jobs and, and make other reductions. We're seeing investment capital shift within the sector as well, uh, away from possible therapies that would be geared towards seniors in the Medicare program and into other areas. Uh, we worked hard to make this argument to the members of Congress uh, ahead of the law's passage, but unfortunately, we lost that fight. Um, you know, we're going to continue to report real-world data um, on what we see in our state and across the country. And members of Congress has asked us for additional examples of the unintended consequences and the impacts to companies and the industry. And, and we're working together with our partners to be able to bring more of that information to Congress so that they can truly make good, educated decisions going forward. Have the California delegation been receptive to what you've been saying? They're receptive to understanding more of the unintended consequences that they didn't um, expect. Um, they're more receptive now to discussing PBMs and their role uh, in the overall ecosystem and the pricing. Um, and they've asked us for more examples of some of the things that we've talking about, especially those that have delegations in those um, epicenters across California that they're seeing impact in that they really didn't expect to see. One of the points of the Inflation Reduction Act is it's a quote-unquote negotiation. Now, when we say negotiation, the penalty for not entering into this negotiation for Medicare is an excess of an 80% hit on the profitability of the asset in question. So does the government ever really negotiate, Mike, in your opinion? <laughs> well, the short answer is no. <laughs> um, you know, this law, this law is written... Um, and it doesn't set up for negotiation. Uh, the law prescribes a maximum fair price that the Department of Health and Human Services can calculate, but it doesn't provide for a minimum fair price. Uh, the law calls it negotiation, but the law's writers have made their intention to empower HHS and Medicare pretty clear to have control over the situation. And, and you know, by definition, to me, that's not negotiation. We've seen the impacts of what's happened in Europe, as prices have diverged so strongly between the United States and Europe, we've seen enormous drops in venture capital, late stage venture capital in a biotech in Europe now is running at 3% of the United States, for example. There's a 60% split in IP creation between the United States and Europe. Do you think we can escape similar impacts if we see similar reductions here in the US? I don't, uh, you know, not if they continue down this path. I think it's just, um, you know, uh, too difficult. And, you know, even when you look at the divided uh, house when this originally passed and, and where people fall on Republicans versus Democrats, they're not in alignment on what it is. And depending on where they go with it, I don't see that that impact is not going to be negative. The problem is, too, they, it seems like the Congress felt they needed a win coming into the election, and this was a, a cheap chip shot. And unfortunately, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle, Republican or Democrat, um, the industry right now is, <laughs> in many ways, the industry is united both sides of the aisle on this issue. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's unfortunate. You know, we've seen that between 2000 to 2010, there were roughly 252 drugs and 363 drugs approved from 2011 to 2020, a 111 drug increase. Overwhelmingly, 95% of that came from the United States. California was responsible for the largest share of that total. What is it about the California ecosystem that drives such productivity? What is it in the secret sauce of the state that makes that happen? 
Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, California is the birthplace of biotechnology, and it's the entire mix of all the factors and players in the ecosystem that makes our state such an innovation powerhouse compared to other states across the country. You know, CLS's membership is actually quite diverse for a life science trade association, as I mentioned earlier, uh, very similar to our overall ecosystem, you know, spanning biopharma, med tech companies, small, medium, and large, but also those research institutions, hospitals, universities, venture investor community. And then California boasts a number of world-leading research universities and hospitals, which are very successful in getting that NIH and NSF research awards. Uh, and that goes a long way with what we do overall in the state. You know, we must, of course, have uh, the educated, skilled, and driven workforce to make it all possible. And I'm happy to say we do have that, and we attract more and more of that talent all the time. But it's really a combination of all those factors in the life sciences clusters in California that continues to attract the talent and the researchers and the investment that really sustains our ecosystem here in California and sets it apart. Uh, you know, if you drive into our offices in South San Francisco and San Diego, you can look around and you can see the names of all the major life science companies on the buildings around us. But you're also going to see names that you might not be familiar with today. But our goal is that 10 years from now, you're absolutely going to be familiar with those. And I think a lot of other states and or the regions are looking to locate our special sauce we have in California, but it's just not that easy to do, especially when California has such a head start. Um, but we're proud of this ecosystem that we've uh, created and we're committed to protecting it. So Genentech starts the sector in 1976 up in South Bay, South San Francisco, and that's sort of one of the anchors. You've got San Diego and their cluster, which really booms from 1990 to 2010. So you've got these two spots. And here we are sitting in Orange County by John Wayne Airport, which has been, dare I say, we had Smith Klein Beecham here in the 80s and some of the diagnostic companies, but it's been a bit of a desert. What do you see? You mentioned earlier, there's some growth here. What's happening here in Orange County? Are things starting to happen in LA and Orange County? Is there starting to be some action? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, there, there's been a lot of support um, from the local cities and, and areas. There's been uh, local support um, by companies across California, especially those that are located here in LA and Orange County to try to make this one of the next um, hubs for life sciences. There's already quite a bit of med tech here a good startup community, but they're trying to get more of that life sciences, overall biotech and, and pharmaceutical companies here. Uh, and they've been making progress and I'm happy to see it. We can have three areas of California, <laughs> not just San Diego and South San Francisco, which, you know, certainly are, are two of the top, like you've talked. And certainly there's Boston uh, out there on the East coast, but yeah, it's, it's nice to see the growth. People from San Francisco would rather light their head on fire than come to Orange County generally, but uh, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you have Edwards life sciences, you know, we could walk there right now and have a coffee. You've got UCI, 10 minutes walk the other way, one of the top medical institutions in the United States. You know, you've got Cedar sinai up in LA. UCLA is the second largest employer in the state of California after the U.S. Navy. But there's not been the hardcore biotech here. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think it in many cases, and I hear it quite regularly about why companies feel like they have to start in San Diego, San Francisco, and in Boston sometimes, although not as often as I, as uh, <laughs> as California, at least from my perspective. It's the clusters we have, in particular yeah. in San Francisco and San Diego, and it's extremely incestuous, as we know. People are just hiring and jumping from one company back and forth, and they're starting new companies, and they you know are doing so many great things, and the talent pool here 
uh, oh, well, here I'm sitting in LA, Orange County, but yeah. where I come in South San Francisco or my office is or in San Diego is undeniable. So, so many companies want to go there. Now there is more and more talent and there are some great companies like you mentioned, uh, Edwards and others in the research uh, institutions uh, and academic institutions that are here in that LA, Orange County. And I think that will continue to attract more and the more companies that come here we will see this grow. Do you think it has a lot to do with the VCs? I mean, there's been sort of a hub of venture capital in San Diego, obviously South San Francisco and Silicon Valley. There's Absolutely. tons of VC there. LA's not been known for the VC community. No, and, and um, I think there's been more VCs that have been moving out here and, and, and certainly participating here in the growth. But absolutely, the, the venture community in San Francisco and San Diego is, is just undeniable. Culturally, what do you see as different between the two parts of the state? Do you see a cultural difference in how it operates? You know, I, I'm actually born and raised in the, in the Bay Area, but oh, okay. I've spent um, a big chunk of my time here over the last 25 years in, in what I've done, you know, pretty close to half my time between San Diego and, and Northern California. I think from a business perspective, not a big change culturally, though. It's a little bit more laid back. I remember coming here um, quite a few years ago when I used to wear a sport coat or a tie all the time. And you walked <laughs> into offices in San Diego, and not only was it take off the tie, but take off the sport coat. And it was much put more. Put, yeah. Here, I mean, it's not uncommon to walk in and people are in flip-flops um, and board shorts. And, and hey, great. I mean, I, I can certainly live like that as well. In fact, I enjoy it. Um, but the technology has been terrific. And where San Diego has come in the last 25 years, has made huge leaps and bounds. San Francisco or South San Francisco in particular, Northern California had that great start with, with Genentech and it's continued to, to pour gas on that fire and grow. But uh, it's been fun to watch and, and there's some cultural differences, but I think overall California culture is still very different than the rest of the country. We just had a decision coming out of the World Trade Organization that unfortunately had the support of USTR, US Trade. The World Trade Organization and the current administration have decided to endorse waivers on intellectual property specifically related to the mRNA technology, the baseline technology that was used for the vaccination program for COVID. But obviously, the original application for mRNA was oncology. Are you concerned about this precedent given the fact that IP is the glue that kind of holds the whole sector together? Uh, short answer is absolutely. I'm concerned. Um, our members are very concerned. It's, it's frustrating to see such mixed signals from the government uh, regarding this. Um, you know, predictable and defendable IP rights are the basis for investment in the life sciences R&D. Uh, and beyond any individual company, global recognition of IP rights protects the competitive advantage of the American economy of high value innovation. You know, biotech companies can and do have signed licensing agreements to expand production of COVID-related therapies abroad, uh, and at the same time ensuring they are licensing their IP to reputable manufacturers to make sure it's, it's handled correctly. Uh, you know, it's, I also think it's frustrating to see how the TRIPS waiver for vaccine IP has not advanced the drive for vaccination around the world. Uh, you know, unfortunately, um, it has not created more vaccines. In fact, vaccines have been thrown out in some developing companies yeah. because they can't get them to patients. There's even serious questions about whether or not access to the vaccination was even the motivation or if this was just really a backdoor way to try and pry open IP rights through uh, the TRIPS waiver. 100%. Then that's one of the biggest concerns because you, 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 you open it up here and you're opening up 
uh, uh, just huge issues across the, the globe, really, but for California and for the U.S. market in particular. And it's a signal that the entire IP system is at risk if that was to happen. And again, it's odd that an administration that should be aligned with California politics, to put this diplomatically, would be the one basically hammering on a California sector where a lot of the IP is created. How has the feedback been going back and forth? Has there been any communication with DC and some of the representatives at the state level in DC about this particular issue on IP? Yeah, you know, we've we've had many conversations. We've called on the administration to oppose extending the IP waiver uh, to COVID-19 therapeutics and, and diagnostics. It might be good to jump in there and just explain that there's still a decision out that was on December 15th that was waived where they were trying to expand this very narrow waiver on mRNA to any therapeutic at all. And, you know, the government has pushed for and at least got a delay right now to that waiver. So, you know, we're, we're cautiously optimistic that, uh, that they're going to rethink that, but it, it's troubling and it really has real world, world impacts, not only on us and our ecosystem today, but the future of, of what we're doing. All right. So you've got price controls coming in, you've got IP waivers coming in, You've got state pressure on investors with potential capital gains taxes that we've been talking about. You've got Arizona trying to put in tax breaks and is gobbling up manufacturing. A whole bunch of stuff going on here, Mike. Where do you think the ecosystem will be, the California ecosystem will be in 24 months from now? Where do you think this lands? Well, you know, look, we, we've had our ups and downs over the years. Um, and, and, you know, overall, I'm confident that we're going to come out of this. How long it's going to take, I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of economic headwinds right now with inflation, high interest rates, risk of recession, layoffs in our sector. It's tough out there uh, and people are struggling. It's real. These are real risks that entrepreneurs, investors and workers are considering in their work right now, today, every day. Uh, but at the end of the day, the best and the brightest thinkers uh, will continue to pursue their work and advance science and medicine, and that has to happen. You know, California has long attracted visionary thinkers and some of the best minds in the world, and I think we'll continue to be that case here with biotech. So, you know, despite the issues, despite the concerns we've discussed today, I'm optimistic. You know, I'm willing to bet on California's life sciences ecosystem, and, and I truly believe we're going to come out of this. Uh, I just hope it's sooner rather than later. And I don't know that it's going to be in the in the next six months, but I, I do uh, hope and, and believe that we are going to start seeing this. Do you think that the California delegation in the Senate and the House will reconsider IRA? Do you think that there's a possibility there? Uh, everything we've been told, and you know, you, you you heard the president in his address, you know, say that he would veto some, the, anything that was specific to it. I don't know that they will um, reconsider it in its entirety, but I think there's a chance that we can get them to understand some of those unintended consequences and hope that they will edit the law a little bit to make it better and not so impactful. Uh, we're also working with CMS uh, on the implementation. You know, when we've met with them a few months back, their big question to us was, how do we implement this without it impacting innovation. And, and, and my <laughs> well, it's a nice, it's nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and my short answer was we don't. There yeah. is absolutely no way to implement this law without hurting innovation. 
And they were very surprised to hear that. And they were very surprised because they even told us in this first meeting we had a few months ago that, well, it's okay. This isn't going to happen for a few years. And so I had members of my board with me in that meeting. And they said, well, no, it's literally happening today. We're losing funding. We're, we're making changes to our businesses. We're reducing burn rates. We're doing all these things today in anticipation of it. So if you don't implement this law in some way that's better than what it has actually been written, it will have devastating impact on innovation. And so getting them to understand that, I think, opened their eyes, but it's still a law that was written that has that CMS's job is to implement. We're trying to work with them to make sure that we try to find as gentle a way to implement it as possible with as much clarity as possible as well. So companies can actually make decisions on what's going to be happening in the future. And I hope we can get members of Congress and the Senate to really understand that and know that they're just trying to affect 10 drugs or 14 drugs and just the big pharma companies. And it is not that. It will have a devastating impact across the entire ecosystem. Yeah, 20% of the drugs fund 80% of the R&D at any one time. That's the reality. You can't whack a mole hair and not have it <laughs> pop up over there. No, nope. There will be impacts. And the, I guess the other th problem with this bill, which was never discussed, is you're attacking arguably the most impactful, the most innovative, the most important novel therapies, which is why they sell so darn well. And not only that, it's on the heels of, you know, this industry saving arguably the world from a pandemic that had no cures, had no vaccines, had no testing. And within months, all of that was made possible because those same companies put all their other research, if not all, most of it on hold so that they could focus on COVID-19. And as soon as we felt like we were out of that, it feels like the government said, thank you very much. We <laughs> forgot all about it. Now we're going to penalize you for all these other things. Thank you, Mr. Picasso. The oils are nice. Let's look at those etchings now. <laughs> yeah. Mike Guerra, the head of CLS, California Life Sciences, the director. Mike, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure seeing you. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.